This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The heads of two major European central banks have issued an open letter warning that climate change poses a significant financial risk to the global economy. The letter was co-signed by the Network for Greening the Financial System, a coalition of 34 central banks, and emphasizes the impacts already being felt around the world. Leaders of the Bank of England, as well as France's financial governor, listed three main issues. Physical, which includes immediate impacts from drought and storms. Transition, the cost of moving away from carbon industries in a sudden or disorderly manner, and liability, people seeking compensation for losses related to the first two. With more on the letter and its impact, we're joined in studio by Eric Ortz, director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership, and as well a professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining us on the phone is Dr. Emanuela Campilio, assistant professor at Vienna University School of Economics and Business, as well as a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Eric, great seeing you again. Good to see you. Uh, Emmanuel, great to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It is interesting, uh, Emmanuel, that I think when we talk about the the issues surrounding climate change that the economic side of it may not necessarily be the first thing that that we bring up yet it is just as important yes absolutely um well the research on uh, the economic impacts of uh, of climate change uh, is now uh, a, yeah old uh, decades i would say the interesting turn has been on the financial side of it. Of course, there, there was research on this as well, but uh, we have never experienced such a massive interest uh, from uh, financial policymakers like uh, central banks and financial regulators. So yes, it's a very exciting time on this side. So to see this type of a letter come out and, and to address these issues is really in point with where we need to go then, correct? It is. It is. Well, you know, the financial system is absolutely crucial uh, in achieving a rapid and smooth transition, both because we need to scale up uh, financial resources going into low carbon sectors and also because the low carbon transition might have disruptive effects on financial stability. So the presence of a regulator that indicates the way, yes, it's definitely uh, a good sign for the future. Eric? Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think the uh, I think maybe the critical uh, insight here to uh, explain why central bankers and the financial system in general are increasingly interested in this issue is that previously, if you raise the uh, question of climate change, including the economic consequences, uh, the answer in the financial community was, well, what's the time horizon when we're really going to see an immediate impact? And the answer was, well, maybe 30, 50 years. The answer now is is that we're seeing these impacts now. And uh, the window of making a significant transition uh, in order to avoid radical crashes in the world, right. including financial crashes, is 10 to 12 years. So now once it's uh, – once the um, – once you're bringing this problem into the time horizon of uh, uh, as, as, uh, of the the zone of what the financial community should be paying attention to, including, as was just mentioned, the central bank's responsibility to assure financial stability, economic stability, this becomes a problem and, and it becomes a focus. And so <clears throat> this letter, it's interesting, this um, 
the organization that the letter refers to an organization on which both the Bank of England and the Banque de France are on the steering committee, um, and that's the Network for Greening the Financial System. And so details can be are available in a report that they just issued in April 2019, and you indicated some of the findings in that report right. of, of why this is so important. And one other thing to note, of course, is that the United States is not yet in this. So even though we have, 30, I think it's 35 um, central banks are involved and about four or five observers, um, you don't have the United States. And that's because this is relatively recent. This organization was founded in 2017. We had an election in the United States in 2016, a change in the in the, in the Fed. So uh, that's uh, – even though the United States is not here, though, this is really represent, this represents a huge number of countries. You have China, you have Mexico, um, many, many European countries, et cetera, are all involved in this. So it's, it's similar. I think it's an indication that this is the future, and eventually the United States will also be compelled to come into this if you're going to take financial stability seriously. How much, Emmanuel, how much of this needs to be policy change amongst governments around the world at this point? Well, policy change is absolutely crucial. Um, the, 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 the usual policy recommendation, of course, uh, is to put a price on carbon. That is the main policy that should be implemented, and it rests with, uh, with elected governments, with uh, national governments. You know, it's fiscal policy. Uh, central banks now and financial regulators are introducing a new uh, dimension uh, of policymaking, uh, which has many different forms. Um, it goes from, a, from a, a, a weaker dimension that has to do with um, supporting uh, financial institutions to disclose their risks to climate-related, uh, disclose their, their, climate related, their exposure to climate-related financial risks right. to a stronger version, um, which we see mainly in emerging economies, I would, ha- I would say, um, that uh, involves uh, the central bank and financial regulation using uh, their instruments for promotional purposes, so actively steering um, this uh, uh, massive amount of financial resources towards uh, green sectors, and this is something that you see, um, especially in China. Uh, I would say China is is one of the main leaders of this um, of this new process, together with uh, some European countries. Um, as you highlighted, yes, the, the U.S. is uh, one of the most notable absent um, in this process. Uh, it's not the only one. Many large emerging economies are also not part of it. If you think about uh, India, Brazil. Uh, Russia and so on, but of course uh, the U.S. the the the, the dominance of the U.S. also uh, from a um, uh, culturally speaking, uh, you know, in the financial community, that would be a great sign um, to move forward. How much then, Emmanuel? What were these issues that that both you and and Professor Ortz bring up? How much were they already kind of intertwined in the Paris Climate Accord? And maybe how much more still needs to be included moving forward in that agreement? Well, the Paris Agreement was uh, uh, pioneering in this sense because it was the the, the, the first time that the international community really recognized the, um, the importance of moving the financial system in that direction. Of course, there were signs before that, but um, one of the main three objectives of the Paris Agreement is exactly to steer financial resources in that direction. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah. 
Eric? Yeah. Well, I think that you uh, the wind has come out of the sails a little bit on the Paris Agreement, mainly because the U.S. has indicated an intention to withdraw. But I think it does provide the main framework for the future in which and how governments are going to act. But this I think this is this development is significant because you don't have to wait for the Paris Agreement to make some progress on these kinds of issues. And um, as already mentioned, there's a few things that are are being proposed and, and, and really pushed by the central bankers here. One is let's get better reporting about what are the risks on climate change. So there's a lot of assets that if, in fact, we are going to do something serious about making a transition to a low-carbon economy, and that's a big if, like yeah. if you get a price on carbon, if you get other uh, other kinds of technological changes, business changes, et cetera, to move that way, then you're going to have then you're going to have a lot of overvalued companies. So you're not going to be able to burn all the coal, all the oil, et cetera, that are are currently already uh, already owned and discovered, and also you're not going to have much market for finding more and drilling more, right? So, so that's going to have a significant effect on the economy, and then those businesses that are affected by, who are tied to those industries, are also going to be really seriously affected. And so, the question here is um, really the kind of two general uh, financial cliffs that you're going to, you're potentially going to go over. One is that the policy environment finally gets it together to make a relatively smoother transition right. to a post-carbon world where you're going to have a massive shift in in the energy production, et cetera, and that there are going to be a lot of companies that are going to be disrupted by that. And there's potentially going to be a financial crash or at least a significant readjustment. So what the financial, uh, what the central bankers are saying, look, we have to get ahead of that. We have to get better information about this. And we, in, in, a, in, a, in the best possible world, you make a relatively smooth transition within the next 10, 12 years to this, and the financial system will handle the disruption that's inevitably going to occur. Now, there's a second big cliff, which is that you don't do anything. Sure. And then they're saying, as you started out the hour with saying, there's this huge risk. So if you don't do anything, then the other cliff is you are in a permanent bear market for like centuries, right? That's what we're talking about here. And that's why it's hard for people to think about this. Right. If you go over the cliff, then you have massive, significant regions of the world that are going to be uninhabitable, right? Read the – there's a new book out called The Uninhabitable Earth. That doesn't mean human beings are going to be extinct, but it means that we'll have tens of millions of people that are dying. We're going to – you know, forget about 100,000 people on the southern border. You're going to have – think about what it would look like if you have 10 million. Think about the disruption to Europe caused by one million refugees, which were partly caused by climate change and, and, and instability in Syria. What if that number is 10 million or 20 million? So that's what you're talking about. Then you're talking about a complete breakdown, really, a threat to the way our human civilization is organized. So I think that with the, you know, it's encouraging that the poles are shifting. More and more people are getting it. They see the hurricanes hitting the United States. They see wildfires in California. They see tornadoes. Uh, in the, in um, uh, they see it, they see strange weather. They see rising, and so people are getting that. But then the question is. Uh, if you don't make that transition, it's very possible we don't because human beings aren't set up to make it. Right. Then you're going over an even bigger financial cliff. 
And then somebody will make a lot of money on that. Someone who has the big climate short will make a lot of money when the markets crash, but you're making a lot of money at the end of the world, right? Well, like you're making a lot of money with, in a terrible way. So the central bankers, I think, here are joining the chorus of academics and nonprofits, politicians of different stripes and saying, look, the, this, the threat is real. We have to make this transition. But we got to make. We have to worry about the financial stability of the system as we're making that transition. Emmanuel, it's interesting because we've talked about that quite a bit here on this show, and obviously the conversations go on here in the United States. But how frequent are those types of conversations going on in other parts of the world? Let's use Europe for an example. Obviously, the, the Paris Accord being something that is in play here, and now this this letter by the the two gentlemen from various ECB banks. Uh, but how frequent yeah. are the conversations like Professor Wirtz just laid out going on in, in Europe? More and more frequent. Um, you know the expression central banks are the only game in town that came uh, after the financial crisis. And it seems that something similar um, is, um, is happening again. Uh, they're becoming the only game in the, in the climate uh, game, uh, in the climate town. Um, there, there are increasing, uh, an increasing number of uh, events, discussions, and uh, uh, public debates on what the role of central banks and financial regulators should be, uh, whether these type of interventions are within their mandates or not. Uh, right. If they are, what kind of uh, objectives they contemplate uh, climate, uh, climate interventions, and uh, what kind of effects uh, would these policies have? In general, the, um, the let's say I speak from a more of, of an academic perspective. Uh, there is uh, a lot going on in terms of uh, trying to provide central banks and financial regulators with a comprehensive, consistent, analytical framework capable of addressing these questions. Because the the big problem here is that, you know, I, I see this um, uh, process as, as very, very positive. Uh, however, I also notice that uh, there's not much going on in terms of new methodological developments. The, there are some pioneering studies uh, that are putting, being put forward, but we still lack, uh, you know, for instance, a macro-financial model that is capable of uh, uh, representing both the transition dynamic, decarbonization pathways, and financial variables, you know, where you have a banking system and you have loans and you have uh, uh, financial institutions and equity markets. Right. And in the meantime, also the rest of the socioeconomic system and try to understand how, how this move forward in a dynamic setting. Right. And, and, and this is crucial. Yeah. And I would think that something as simple as the rates that one bank would be asking for another bank, you know, a, a loan that, uh, that they would be requesting, that becomes impacted. Even some of the, the most simple functions of banks will be impacted by a lot of these issues. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think banks, uh, I think many financial, in, financial institutions, including banks, are starting to realize that this is, that this is real, uh, this is happening, and they're starting also to believe that central banks are serious in this. So 
as, as um, uh, it was being said before in this conversation, uh, this might be a very powerful signaling uh, tool, uh, you know, without really implementing any specific policies, but all these central banks are really setting uh, the pace and indicating the direction forward. And if uh, enough um, uh, critical mass within the financial system believes it, then they will start gradually to move in that direction. So the, the, the hope here is to have a, a rapid transition, but one that is also smooth. Eric? Because expected. Okay. Yeah, well, I think I, I agree with everything that was said, and I think in particular, just to emphasize the academic side of this, we really do need new models and, and, and thinking about what the world will look like, how you, how you can make this kind of transition. Um, one of the, it's an old metaphor, but one way to think about a lot of, uh, a lot of the practice of finance today and even some of the research, much of the research today, is you're thinking about things about how everything has been working so far, right. and you're not really thinking about what is the transition that we're talking about or what are the effects of a, a real falling off of the cliff where civilization is totally changing. I think that's just a tendency of human beings. We just look ahead to a relatively short time frame. We want to make sure we have our basic needs met and then we have a job we're looking forward and kind of things are – there's a tendency to think this is the usual. And what's being emphasized here is that you have to think outside the frame of that and the, and the old metaphor is that – is the Titanic, right? Is that you're facing the potential of, ha of hitting an iceberg and sinking right. and you can spend a lot of time sort of doing the usual thing uh, on the deck – uh, and having fun, et cetera, and focusing on how everything is usually working. But if you're not looking at the potential really huge risk, and just to put this you know, in, in more concrete financial terms, this, this risk involves insurance and reinsurance. What happens yeah. in, in that sector? Real estate valuations. What happens when you have continuing sea level rises and continuing huge storms? Water and uh, food shortages. Um, uh, lower household wealth then overall, that's going to hit, hit the financial uh, markets. And then finally, you mentioned at the top litigation and liability over this. So as, um, uh, as, as was mentioned, we don't have necessarily the models that are, that are taking account of those kinds of risks that right. are developed. Right. And that's what academics could really usefully do is start to focus on, wait, how can we bring this into uh, our economic model modeling, our financial modeling, and how we're thinking about policy options? If you can, Manuel, touch on the, the, the liability side for a second because it's something that is being discussed more and more here in the United States, that, that the issue with insurance and reinsurance is growing and it's expected to continue to grow in the years to come without some sort of significant change. Yes. Uh, among the, the three types of risks that, uh, that you mentioned, liability risk is probably the one that received uh, less attention, uh, is true. Um, but it's becoming more and more relevant. Um, more and more uh, lawsuits are, are being opened, uh, for instance, by shareholders against the, the, the companies or um, against uh, local authorities, uh, sorry, f from local authorities uh, to uh, fossil fuel uh, sector um, companies because of their contributions to climate change. I'm not really sure how this will play out, uh, honestly, whether this will become, a, this will materialize uh, as a risk because we haven't still really experienced the end of these processes, at least to 
to my knowledge. That is, these, these lawsuits have been opened, uh, but we, know, we don't have any conclusive evidence of how the judicial system would treat um, these cases. And then you throw in also the fact that the various banks obviously hold a variety of assets, Emmanuel, that, again, if nothing is done, there would have to be a reassessment of a lot of those assets and probably a downgrading of them over the course of time as well. Yes, uh, that's that's very much true. Um, I think also this motivates uh, the activism that we observe in certain parts of the financial system in uh, um, favor of this uh, disclosure, risk disclosure, uh, right? Because many investors are indeed interested in understanding whether uh, they are exposed uh, to these risks, because maybe they are, maybe they aren't. They're just not used to thinking these ways. They don't have the methodologies. They're in the process of developing them. But there's still a lot of confusion of, of what counts, uh, what matters, how to calculate things and so on. So um, they are also supporting several academic, more academic um, uh, projects in trying to understand uh, and develop methodologies in this sense. Because if they are exposed, then of course uh, we might expect them to um, uh, shift uh, their portfolio towards uh, less uh, risky investments. Um, they need to do it. Uh, if they do it, you know, in a forward-looking manner, then this becomes a smooth uh, transition. If they suddenly all realize, because of some reason, uh, that they are heavily exposed and they all try to sell at once, then we're back to the financial crisis um, mode. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with that. And, and just to add a little bit more, I think it's it's also I think more and more uh, finance scholars as well as uh, central bankers are realizing that the standard model of just of only focusing on risk disclosure or these kinds of metrics is really not sufficient. And the reason is that the existential threat that we now face with climate change does not fit into the models of how we've uh, thought about how do you regulate economies, how do you provide uh, financing for different projects that are focused on development and certain targets like inflation targets, et cetera. The, and, and, the, and, the very, and, and the fact that we're ha- we have this existential threat that now has risen means that you have to really think about what the point of the system is. The point of the system has to be stability not only uh, within this old model but stability of the entire human civilization really yeah. and 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 how to think about moving the needle on that and so i think you you see in these uh in these in these reports and studies that central bankers are saying you kind of have to get outside your comfort zone and actually take a position on how do policymakers handle this that you really do need to handle this because if policymakers don't handle this then you're hitting a financial crash so it's related yeah. to their 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 fundamental goal but they need to kind of step outside their box of just watching one thing and, and realize they have to be involved in policy discussions as well. Emmanuel, have about a minute left. Can we expect, though, banks to, to somewhat reform themselves to be able to kind of lead us down this path? Or is, is that an expectation that, that really should not be there, especially considering all the issues we've seen with big banks over the last decade or so? Uh, banks are financial institutions that are motivated by the pursuit of uh, of profit, right? And so they they will act accordingly uh, if we set 
um, uh, rules that move that, that steer them in in a societally useful direction. Uh, of course, there's, there are some risks in doing this because, uh, as um, as it was being said, central banks are stretching the boundaries of their operations, but they are heavily limited in what they can do uh, because of the institutional framework that we live in, right? right. Where which is very market friendly, and we want. To, to, to think about efficiency and so on. Right. So uh, I'm not really sure what to expect. Okay. Um, I don't expect banks to reform from within. Uh, I would like central banks to uh, be more active in steering them, yes. Great having you with us, Emmanuel. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. Great seeing you. Great to Thank see you. Thank you. Eric Hortz of the Wharton School, Dr. Emmanuel Campilio of uh, Vienna University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.